Uh, I graduated last December, uh, or two Decembers ago from Iowa State. I did the engineering thing, as a bunch of people do here. Um, liked it, it was great, but I'll back up a little bit, uh, so I'll go through this pretty quick. Um, in high school, uh, I was actually homeschooled in middle school, then I went to public school in high school. Um, I was in a long-term relationship in high school, three and a half years, uh, fell into a lot of sexual sin, lots of bad things um, in those years. Uh, long story short, uh, we broke up. Uh, I was very, very depressed for a few months. I was very close to committing suicide. I wanted to end my life. I didn't see a reason to move on. And uh, it was one night that I was thinking about getting into the gun safe, um, and I kind of decided the gun that I would use. Uh, and my youngest sister came down, and she kind of knew what was going on. Um, and she just came down to my room and asked me what was going on. Um, I didn't say much. And I asked her, how can you be so happy all the time? I don't get it. Um, and she said, it's not me, Aaron. Um, it's Jesus. And I was like so frustrated and infuriated by that answer. I had such a cheap answer. Like, what, what is that? Um, so I guess that was kind of the start of my spiritual journey. Uh, from there, uh, I was pretty hungry. Uh, I joined Fellowship of Christian Athletes in high school. We kind of had a chapter. It kind of fell apart. That's where I got my first Bible. Um, and then I came to Iowa State. And my focus was, I want to be an engineer. I want to make lots of money. I want to have a white picket fence. Uh, I had my future planned out for me. Um, and it turns out Iowa State was uh, probably the biggest blessing of my life. Um, I was thinking about going to a junior college to play basketball. I'm glad I didn't. Uh, I'm so glad I came to Iowa State. Uh, God was not on my radar, but it was the biggest part of my four and a half years here. Yes, so I went to a college retreat my freshman year, um, and it was the first time I'd ever heard the gospel. I'd ever heard of what Jesus had done for me, uh, and I just cried. And I had never cried like that in my life. I had never cried uh, out of my soul. I'd only cried out of physical pain before that. Um, and then I did this crazy thing. I took perspectives uh, on the world uh, or God's global movement in the world. Uh, I know it's been hosted by Cornerstone here in Ames for a few years, uh, as well as E-Free Church. Uh, so I took that my freshman year, right, as I pretty much got saved. And that just messed me up <laughs> big time. Uh, anybody knows? Uh, perspectives. I know it has a track record of messing people up pretty good. Um, so from there, I was pretty interested. I was like, okay, God, what, what can I do maybe as an engineer uh, to be involved through the world, uh, to get outside of the U.S. while still serving you? So I joined Engineers Without Borders, which is EWB. Uh, I got really interested in doing international economic development projects, uh, wells, things like that. Um, and this is kind of where uh, my first big conviction comes from. Um, we did a lot of research and study um, on failed projects uh, overseas, uh, in Africa, um, in South America. And it was interesting how many things had failed. Um, and the only thing I really took out of that was that uh, the people there didn't have ownership of whatever was going on. Um, so I kind of shifted gears a little bit. Um, and this is a famous quote. Uh, I can't remember who it's by, but he said, in order for third world countries to develop, we ought to start taking their people much more seriously. Um, you know, and I don't know if it's part of our heritage in America to be imperialistic, um, but I think every country has something to offer. And God has gifted every people with something unique. Uh, and when we go there and we try to import our ideas and our values, um, they reject it, right? 
just like the human body rejects things that aren't from it. Um, so I kind of realized this giving uh, to foreign aid, all that, you know, what's helpful and what's not? I really started to question that. And I came across this good book. It's called Giving Wisely. Uh, and he kind of lays it out. He says, does your giving support dependence or independence? Um, and I really think that's what Jesus means in that parable about the fishermen, right? Are you giving a man a fish for a day or are you teaching him how to fish? Are you creating independence or are you creating dependence? Um, and this quote uh, is actually from my friend. friend. Um, his family is a mission. Well, uh, they're missionaries overseas in Southeast Asia. Uh, we were talking back and forth, trying to catch up over email. And he just said this a few weeks ago. We are as convinced as ever that as adults, business is real life, and interacting with people through business is the most natural and effective way of engaging uh, with people authentically. And I was just like, oh, that's so good. Because when I knew uh, this gentleman and his family, um, they, don't, they didn't have any idea of wanting to start a business. They wanted to kind of open up a dummy language center overseas and meet people, um, and he came back and said this, uh, and I just thought that was so good. So uh, where that's kind of, where I've kind of fallen through all this, um, I got a lot of student debt. I'm sure there are some in the room with that same problem. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I decided the direction for my family, or at least for my wife and I, uh, would be to just pound out student debt. Well, in the meantime, I thought, what is a way that we can engage with uh, international students that we can engage with Muslims here in the U.S. Um, and I spent a ton of time in college uh, going to all sorts of activities to try to make Chinese friends, to try to make uh, Arab friends. Um, and I got kind of exhausted with that. So I was like, perfect, goats, right? Goat meat. What can I raise, what can I grow that will naturally attract the nations to me? It's goat meat. Um, and it just kind of happens that White people don't really like goat meat. So if you're going to buy goat meat, uh, you're probably going to be somebody of a different color and a different country. So uh, I bought some goats last spring, and then I joined these guys um, here in Ames, actually, Aaron Steele and Chad Steinhoke. Uh, they started a business called Goats on the Go. Uh, I don't know if you've heard it. But I joined them uh, as a way to try to get a little capital going um, so I didn't have to take out more loans to get started. So we actually go all over the state uh, and do selective grazing. We clean up properties, uh, vegetation problems without using any herbicides or machinery. Uh, so goats are pretty unique. Uh, they love thistles, they love poison ivy, uh, poison hemlock, things like that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we do. <laughs> um, but my intention is to build my herd to sell uh, halal meat. Yes, sir. Um, so uh, one thing, I, I want to throw this out real quick. The 101 ratio is something I picked up uh, in my short little stint in the ROTC. Um, and if you don't think you're somebody who's going in the field, whether or not, I don't know. And as for me and my wife, we don't know yet either. We just want to be open to whatever the Lord leads us to. Yes, um, but the military gave an estimate, and they say it takes 100 support soldiers to support one soldier on the field. 100 to 1. Um, and I was just kind of blown away by that. I didn't realize it. Um, but when you look at the military, when you look at other organizations, um, it's pretty reasonable. So... Uh, there is always a part to be played. Uh, there is always a way to contribute, even if you guys aren't going overseas yourself. So uh, <clears throat> I spent an entire summer uh, over in Southeast Asia on a global business internship. 
So I didn't want to go like the traditional route and just walk around campus trying to share the gospel with people. I wanted to get some real life experience um, from people who were using their business to reach people overseas. Uh, so I came across um, this conference called the Open Expo. And basically, it's a conglomeration of mm, four, 600 teams or families uh, all overseas in the 1040 window who are trying to use business uh, as a platform to reach people for the nations. And it's very important um, for them to be in those countries because they can't get there with a normal uh, tourist visa or anything like that. They have to offer some legitimate value to the community. So uh, <clears throat> I flew out my sophomore fall uh, out to California, didn't even tell my parents, saved up for the tickets, went to this open expo and found out about the Global Business Internship. Um, and joined another guy, I actually went through Cornerstone uh, and kind of through their training. Uh, they partner with a church down in Kansas. Um, they do a thing called O-Week. It's basically like Christian boot camp. Uh, it's a great time, uh, very challenging. Um, I don't know if you ever heard the analogy of lowering the water <clears throat> so that you can see the rocks that are there. You know, I think God likes to do that with our hearts. He, he lowers that water so we can see all those rocks around and we can work on those. We can pick those out of our heart and then he lowers the water more so we can see more rocks come to the surface. Uh, O-Week is like that, but very, very fast and intense. <laughs> um, where was I going with that? I don't know. Um, anyways, uh, so we went overseas. Uh, six weeks uh, was business, kind of like business training um, with somebody who had been hosting interns since the 70s. Uh, we got to meet over a dozen different teams across Southeast Asia who um, were anywhere from just doing language centers to they're on tourist visas, uh, just trying to reach people and share Jesus with them. So uh, it was a great time, but I'll jump into a few things. So a few of my takeaways is whoever's going, wherever you're going, anytime you're with a different people, go native, uh, embrace it. So there was this time we were at the mall. <clears throat> we were walking around trying to meet people. And uh, we didn't realize they don't use toilet paper. So we had to go to the bathroom. Um, we got in there, you know, and I did my thing. And I was like, where's the toilet paper? I, I don't know. Uh, so I was kind of forced to go native. So uh, at least in Southeast Asia, uh, you squat like this. Um, and you use your left hand uh, to wipe, and you pour some water down the lower part of your back. Um, and it's not really your fingers that are removing it. It's really the water, and your fingers are there kind of to assist. Um, so none of the other interns uh, out of us 13 went native with me that day. Uh, they like, you know, I'm not even going to share what they did. Um, but I realized that over there, people don't use their left hand. You don't eat with your left hand. You would never touch somebody with your left hand. You would only shake with your right. Um, and from that day on, uh, I found myself fitting that pretty easily <laughs> because I knew where my left hand had been. Um, and the other interns, when we were out eating food at restaurants and things like that, you know, they would still use their left hand now and then for a fork or spoon or accidentally because they just didn't have that programming of like, this is, this is dirty, I'm not going to use this. Um, and it was a major turnoff because the people there realized, oh, you're not like us. 
um, you don't understand us. You're not part of us. Um, so yeah, when, when you're there, engage. Um, you know, and that goes for even in the U.S. With, when you're with a different family, you know, engage their norms um, and their values. Um, they'll be much more responsive to hear what you have to say. You know, I love uh, Danny Silk out of Bethel Ministries in California. Um, he has some really good stuff on relationships. Um, but he says, can you honor something that's different than you? Yes, it's not necessarily sinful. Um, can you honor something that's different than you? Uh, and being married only for a few months, I testify that is a hard thing to do sometimes. Um, so uh, another story, uh, Sarong. <clears throat> is this piece of garment that they wear in Malaysia um, and Thailand, India. So it's just a big loop of fabric. Um, guys wear it inside. Uh, in Muslim countries, you never show skin. Guys don't show skin. Um, even when they play soccer, the most scandalous thing they would wear would be capris. Um, so that allude up to a story later. but. Coming back from Malaysia, uh, David and I, he was part of my team, uh, we decided to wear sarongs on the airport. <clears throat> so we, uh, instead of wearing other garments, we wore sarongs. Uh, all of, a, well, gosh, we had a 12-hour flight and then a 14-hour flight. We got back in Houston, Texas, and then flew back to Iowa. And it was so much fun because when we were in the Malaysian airport, we had so many people come up to us. They had never seen any white people or any Americans embrace their culture. Uh, and they just were so happy to see us. They went out of their way to serve us at the airport, uh, on the airplane. And then we got back in Houston, Texas, uh, and we were walking around in our sarongs. And you know, little kids were like, mommy, mommy. You know, and the moms would just like grab their kids and pull them aside so they wouldn't look at us. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure when you walk in the Houston airport from the international um, section, it says, welcome to Houston, or welcome to Texas, and it says, welcome to America, but that's beside the point. Um, can we go back? <clears throat> so, um, there was also one day when we were in Thailand, uh, we took a Sunday, um, went out to a beach, and it was just kind of our rest and rejuvenate day, and I decided to wear a sarong, um, because they're very comfortable. Uh, and I had more people come up to me, ask me who I, who I was, what I was there about, want to start conversation with me, um, than I did in all of my attempts to try to, to talk to other people on my own out of 12 weeks. Um, most tourists there, most Americans wear their own clothes. They don't embrace the culture. Um, so some food for, some, some food for thought. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever heard the fruit durian. Um, <clears throat> in Malaysia and Southeast Asia, they call it the king of fruit. It is kind of like a pineapple with its spikes all turned out. And eating it has been referred to as like eating cake in an outhouse. So it's very, very sweet. It's very rich. If you eat too much of it, your stomach will get sick. Um, it needs something to balance it out. And it smells awful. Um, but they love it there. Like, they love it. Um, so one morning, <clears throat> um, we had breakfast out at the market with everybody. Uh, so I was on full stomach. It's hot. Um, it's humid. And some local people invite me over to, to try some durian. I was like, OK, sure. 
Oh, I haven't had it yet. I just heard about it. Um, so they give me a warm BG, which is kind of, uh, and it's like the, you break open the core and they're like these BGs. They're really slimy and there's a, like the nut inside of them. And they, they just hand me one and I take it. That was tough. So I got it down for about five minutes and then I ended up puking it up because um, I, I could not, I couldn't keep it down. But can you click on that link, the durian link? Um, it's just a short little two-minute YouTube video of what durian is like. Uh, just thought it might be fun to share. Maybe not. <clears throat> so anyways, uh, we heard this great quote, so I thought I'd share it. Lord, where you lead me, I will follow. What you feed me, I will swallow. <laughs> um, so that can be hard. Um, but anytime you're over at somebody's house uh, and you don't eat their food, or if you prepared the food, what would you think if you had guests over and they didn't eat it, right? Uh, you'd, you'd see that as a sign of rejection. Uh, you would see that as a sign of dishonor. Um, so uh, in America, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but in most countries across the world, uh, having food together and partaking it uh, is very personal, whether it's good or not. <clears throat> um, Link or no? Okay, uh, I'll just keep going on. Anyways, it's like a bunch of people trying durian, and they're like, they can't, they can't deal with it. You should check it out. YouTube durian sometime. Uh, so this leads into my next story. Uh, I had a jellyfish encounter. So uh, I've had a few bad farm injuries growing up in Iowa before, but uh, this was another Sunday. We kind of had the afternoon off. Um, we were at the beach. It was the first time all summer we'd actually seen um, the beach uh, in Malaysia. And we kind of spread out. We did our own thing. Uh, it was me and another intern, Jonathan, that kind of decided we like this spot on the beach. We're going to hang out here. We're going to rest a little bit. <clears throat> and we had left all of our stuff in the van back about a mile from the restaurant that we ate at. Um, so all I had was my keen sandals, my swim trunks, and a shirt. That's all I had on me. So we were out there swimming. Jonathan was just kicking it back on the beach, loving it. You know, there's people like riding those big air tube worm things on the water, people parasailing. Uh, I'm about 30 feet out, uh, just floating in the waves, and I feel something. It's ter terrible. Worst, stung I, worst sting I've ever felt in my life. And I got hit by a jellyfish. Uh, I got hit across my ribs here, um, across my elbow, across my wrist, uh, all the way across my leg. Uh, and it, it was the most intense pain I've ever felt in my life, uh, which is why I wanted to put this slide up. So a jellyfish has tentacles, and it basically has all these little harpoons, as you see in this first image. Um, and when it makes contact with you, that harpoon shoots out, um, breaks through as many dermal layers of your skin as it can, and it's sitting in venom. So as it goes into you, uh, that venom enters your skin and tries to get into your bloodstream. And uh, if you know how jellyfish work, they basically hover. Um, they're completely controlled by the current. They can't move in the water by themselves. Um, and fish will come up underneath them, and they'll get their tentacles on them. Um, and those harpoons go into them, and that venom is so fast acting, it gets in their bloodstream, and it tries to slow down their heart. So basically, the fish is immobilized within a few seconds. Um, so anyways, 
I got hit pretty bad. Uh, I was screaming. Uh, worst pain I've ever felt in my life. Uh, it was just on the surface. Jonathan was like, do you want me to pee on it? I was like, no, that's fine. Uh, finally, some Coast Guards came by, uh, locals, and they had some vinegar, and they put it on. I guess it was jellyfish season, but since we walked through the restaurant to the beach and not through the mainstream, we didn't see jellyfish warning signs. <laughs> jellyfish season. Uh, we missed that memo. And we also couldn't really read the local language either. Um, <clears throat> so I was rolling around in the sand. I was in so much pain. And then it started to fade. I was like, oh, oh, thank God. It must be the vinegar. That's amazing. Um, There's a few minutes of calm. And then the venom actually got into my blood. <clears throat> and that's where the real ride starts. So as the venom gets into your blood, depending how much you get, no two jellyfish stings are the same. Uh, it totally depends on the jellyfish, how strong the venom is. Um, your body weight and how much venom you get. But uh, my heart started to slow down and all my joints would absolutely ache. So the, the venom is painful for a reason. Not only does it try to slow down your heart, but it makes you so you don't want to move, especially as blood passes through your joints, uh, like your wrists, uh, your ankles, your fingers. Um, it's, it's excruciating pain. It's like needles pricking you from the inside. So I, you know, I, just, I didn't want to move. Uh, and I was in pain to just sit there. Um, at that point, the Coast Guards didn't understand what I was saying. They didn't speak any English. We didn't really speak any Malay. Uh, I hopped on a motorbike on the back, and I took off. Uh, and I was kind of not, I, I wasn't really with it, but Jonathan was back. Um, and they take me to this little emergency care clinic. Uh, and that's when I realized I don't have my passport. I don't have any identification. I don't know my address where we're staying. Uh, I don't have a phone. I don't know anybody else's phone number. I don't even know what drugs I'm allergic to as they hand me some pills. Uh, and I have broken out to some things before. I've broken out to uh, it's some type of tomato preservative. I haven't been able to figure out what it is, but like shrimp sauce, uh, lasagna. Um, my mouth will react. And I'll get swelling and things like that. So I also didn't have my EpiPens with me. Uh, and I took those pills, and I was like, oh, you know, what if, what if I die from this? Not the actual jellyfish thing, but the allergic reaction I could have to a drug, because I don't know what they just gave me. And there's no way I can communicate with them as to what's going on. They can see that I've been stung by a jellyfish, and I'm in a lot of pain. So I was like, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Please, please help me through this. So uh, I continued to roll around in pain. Things were getting worse. It was freezing in there. I remember it was freezing. Um, then they got me on a stretcher, took me in a really, really old van on the ambulance ride to a general hospital, um, rolled me into the hospital on a wheelchair, put me on a bed, um, and then something else weird kind of happened. Um, Indian guy in a, like a white doctor suit comes in. And I'm just like rolling around in, in pain. Like I was just so uncomfortable. And he picks up my arm. I didn't want to look. I just didn't want to look at it, and he tries to put an IV in me, um, and he messes up. And uh, he, he leaves, like he walks out of the room, and then I look down at my hand, and, and there's literally, if you kind of took like a Gatorade cap, and you put it underneath your skin on top of your hand, that's kind of what I had going on. Just like a big, hard blood pocket. I was like, oh, God, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is, this is ridiculous. This is why I live in America, right? I like our health care here. Um, <laughs> so a few minutes later, another doctor comes in, like, p 
picks up my hand and is like, he just looks confused. So I, like, I don't know where that first guy came from, if he was like trying to practice medicine, if he was supposed to be there or not. Uh, I don't know what was going on. But anyways, he, he fixed it. He kind of bled it out, and he got me hooked up with an IV. Um, and then I went to another room. Uh, they pushed me to another room in the hospital, kind of like a recovery room. Uh, and things started to calm down. The drugs started to hit me. I wasn't feeling the pain. I felt pretty tired. Uh, and then it kind of realized me that I was only wearing shrimp trunks and my sandals in a Muslim country where I said earlier, guys would never show any other skin besides maybe wear capri pants if they're playing soccer. You know, so I get up from my bed um, and I'm feeling good. I try to talk with my nurses and they don't understand me. You know, I don't understand them. Um, and they tell me, they give me like a prescription card. So I understand that. So I start walking around this general hospital <clears throat> in my swim trunks, in my sandals, shirtless. Uh, and, you know, people are just staring at me, stopping looking at me. Um, all the girls are just giggling. <laughs> you know, they're ashamed to look at me. Uh, and I was like, this is, this is great. I have no idea where I am. Um, I don't know if they know where I am to find me. Well, I walk around the general hospital for uh, three or four hours, and eventually uh, my party found me. They went to all the hospitals. Uh, in Malaysia, um, and eventually found me. So I did make it home that night, um, and it's kind of beside the point, but uh, I didn't sleep at all that night uh, because I, the pain was awful. So as the venom is in your system, the only way you can get it out is basically through hydration. So you got to pee it all out. So you got to drink lots of water and kind of pass it like kidney stones so you won't stop having the pain until all the venom's out. Um, and then I crashed for like five days. Um, just slept for almost three days straight. Um, woke up a little bit, had some food, a few bananas, some water. Went back to bed for like another 20 hours because I was so exhausted from the pain. <clears throat> um, so wherever you are, follow the buddy system. Have your passport. <laughs> know your phone numbers, wherever you're going. Um, very unsuspecting, but uh, crazy things happen. So, uh, And I think the enemy loves to use even uh, physical trauma to take people off the field. Uh, there's lots of attrition uh, in the missionary realm um, from purely physical things, from just no-nonsense kind of stuff. Um, make sure you're in your team and you're staying together. <clears throat> so uh, another story. We took a faith trip over a long weekend to the south of the country, Johor Bahru. JB, it's a major trading port. Um, basically, there's a couple giant bridges that cross over to Singapore, from JB, uh, and I forget, like 30,000 people cross that bridge every day, um, whatever. Well, all we had was an address and 55 bucks. So we took an eight-hour bus ride to get down there. And we took taxis. We're trying to find this place. Um, and the test was, like, it, it is a faith trip for a reason. Well, we think we get close to the neighborhood of this address, and we ask a local taxi man, um, to help us find it, and he didn't know, he couldn't understand us. He calls his boss over who owns like a lawn care business and a taxi business. Um, he comes there, talks with us, and all we could share with him was our little piece of paper that had the address on it. Um, and he seemed to understand what was going on, uh, and he took us directly to the people we were supposed to stay with because everybody in that entire area knew where the white missionaries lived. They knew their license plate. They knew their house. They knew their kids. 
Um, they all knew. So he didn't have any trouble taking us there. Um, knew right where to go. Only white people in the area. Only missionaries in the area. Um, so one thing I kind of realized during that is I've heard a lot of people talk about strategy and missions. You know, what's the most strategic thing to do? And I realized in Jesus' time here on earth, um, people would say he went to very strategic cities. Guess what? He just followed the trading routes. He just followed where people went. It was no, it was no nonsense. Um, don't overcomplicate it. Um, and we kind of realized that during that time. Uh, and I don't know if you ever heard of Alan Rowland. Uh, he's a pretty famous author. I uh, wrote the book, The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church. Uh, and his point is, even if all of our mission organizations, um, all of our churches got together and focused on reaching the country or the rest of the world, every tongue, tribe, and nation, um, that, yeah, it may eventually happen, but would be a lot more effective is if everybody just loved Jesus wherever they went, um, with their job, um, when you travel, if we just love Jesus. Uh, and I found, that, I found that really convicting um, because we spend so much time um, mission organizations thinking, um, strategizing, planning, um, when really God says he wants to bless us, to bless the nations, and he wants to do it through us. Right? If he wanted to reach every tongue, tribe, and nation right now, he would have done it. But he wants to do it through us. He wants to do it through you and me. Um, he's already claimed victory. He already conquered death. The end has been secured. We have won the battle. Now it's about how we finish the race. It's about how we walk it out. Another <clears throat> um, story. Uh, we went to Thailand for a week. Um, and it was interesting. We were just driving around, and we met a guy, and he really wanted us to go back to his place. And we were a little, little insecure. Um, there had been a number of tourists at that time. Um, who had been captured by Muslim radicals in southeast Thailand um, who went missing. Um, we weren't too far from that area, but we decided to go with him. Um, and he actually owned a spa, and he treated us to a spa for free, and he just wanted to spend time with us. He just wanted uh, to eat with us. He wanted to treat us. Um, he didn't want us to do anything. Uh, he just wanted us to share our lives with him. Um, and it's there that we kind of realize, too, like, man, us Americans and us Westerners, Europeans are like, we are so task-oriented. Um, we're like, we got to do something. You know, we go on a short-term mission trip, and, like, if we're not doing something, we think, you know, like, something's wrong. You know, we got to go paint a wall, or, you know, we can go break rocks into smaller rocks. Like, we just got to do something. Uh, it's part of our culture. We're, we're just task-oriented. Um, and in Thailand, it's totally the opposite, you know, um, Kenya is very much the same way. They're very relational. Um, nobody carries a watch. If they do, it doesn't matter. Um, they just want to spend time engaging you. Um, they don't care about status. They don't care about wealth. They care about relationships. Um, that's what matters most to them. So also as a preview, when uh, I mentioned that week of boot camp, Christian boot camp at O-Week, uh, that was one of the major things they stressed to us was the balance of task orientation um, and relationships. So. Yes, they had like fake security guards there, and they literally would run us around. Um, <clears throat> we were constantly torn between trying to make relationships and still staying on our tasks and our schedule um, and all of that, because you've got to be able to do both. Huh. Um, and I realized, too, at that point, you know, every major celebration of God, um, anything that happens that's important is always surrounded by a meal. 
in the Bible. It is so important. It's such the heart of God um, that we fellowship together over food and over a meal. Uh, don't cut that time short. Um, I don't care if it's with your families or when you're in Nicaragua or what. Um, embrace uh, having food and sharing it with people. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Already shared that. That's wrong. Um, so I actually still wear my sarongs. I love them. I wear them at night. I don't really wear them out anymore, but my wife's not a huge fan, but that's okay. She'll, she'll warm up eventually. <clears throat> um, what we got going on here? Uh, is there any way I can get those top words to come in? Uh, so I want to talk about group dynamics a little bit um, from Ephesians um, and also uh, from Corinthians. If we can get the slide to come up. <clears throat> um, so anyways, in those passages, it says that God first gave the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, um, and then the shepherds, the evangelists, to the church for the equipping of the saints so that the body may be made whole uh, and that we may become one with God. Uh, and literally the same thing repeats in Corinthians, uh, except it's even more dramatic. He says, uh, and he gave the church first apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and da-da-da-da-da. Um, and I didn't really understand what apostleship was. You know, it's kind of a weird, archaic term used way back a few thousand years ago. But apostleship and entrepreneurship is really the same thing. One's applied towards starting businesses. The other's applied towards starting churches. Um, and people that are apostolic kind of have these traits. They're borderline impatient. Um, they have ADHD. They like messing things up. Um, they are the stomach of the body. All right? And what can't the body do without its stomach? It can't grow. Okay? And I would challenge and, and say, if you look at any big organization, any big church in the world, at the core of its growth, at the center, you will find somebody in leadership who is apostolic or who is an entrepreneur. They like to mess things up. You know, and, and the rest of the world really hates these people because they're always breaking our routines. They're always breaking the norm. But they are critical, especially when it comes to being overseas. And I've also seen in churches, when we don't honor somebody who has that calling on their life to be in leadership, when shepherds overstep their bounds and say, hey, we're not going to go there, um, they go stagnant and they go stale. Yes, sir. Uh, so I hope that's a part of this body that we honor that one in 10 or whoever that is who's just constantly hungry. Uh, it's critical that we keep that in the body. Um, otherwise, apostolic people you often find uh, go outside the church because they're not welcomed here. Um, shepherds try to control them. Um, they're not valued, so they just go elsewhere. Uh, and I got that from a friend. Uh, she is in, she works for the largest sending organization in the world, and she said they find most of their best candidates outside of local churches because they've uh, all been basically confined and say, I just don't fit. So they find community elsewhere. <clears throat> so, those are the two verses. Uh, I'll just repeat them real quick. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Um, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Um, I just want to stress that again. That's also why I kind of came up with the background. I kind of wanted an emblem or something that would communicate construction, yes, building people up, um, building things up. 
Uh, and that's the purpose of the church, is that we build each other up. That's what I really think. Um, so, uh, also, I don't know where you guys are at with going to Nicaragua, but I would highly suggest you learn what rejuvenates you and how you find rest. We had major conflict on our team with Sunday afternoons and what we were restored by because some people want to talk. Extroverts, you want to talk. Uh, that's what you feel energized by. And us introverts are like, no, no, we want to go, go sit in a coma for a little bit. Um, really important that you know how to rest. <laughs> um, personality surveys were pretty helpful. Uh, I definitely recommend taking Strength Finders, Myers Briggs. Uh, learn your role in the team. You, know, you don't need to say, like, I'm an apostle, I'm a prophet. Um, but super beneficial. I wish we would have done more of that before we went overseas. Uh, and lastly, I really think fun is the most important element of sustainability for any team, group, or organization. Um, Got to have fun. Got to. Um, <clears throat> little food for thought. Uh, this is kind of my personal take on this, but uh, I've heard a lot of people ask and a lot of college students say in today's time, how can I serve God? How can I use my life to serve God? And I just want to confront that and say, that sentence, that idea, what's it centered on? It's centered on you. Yes, sir. I. What can I do? Ask yourself, what, what does God want? What is his will? What is his hunger? He outlines it clearly in the Bible. The Spirit convicts people to follow it. And then just go do that. Go join that. Don't ask, what, what can I do? All right? That is self-centered philosophy and theology. Um, get that out of here. Um, that makes people overanalyze, overthink uh, about serving God. We overcomplicate it. Just what's God want to do and go, go join it. Uh, I also love this by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, when your love or when you love your vision for community more than the people, you destroy more than you create. When you have such an idea of what you want church to look like, what you want your time overseas to look like, then you actually love your people and you actually serve your people, you will destroy more than you'll create. Time and time again. A <clears throat> um, couple good notes. Uh, I really like meditation. Uh, in the Greek and the New Testament, the most common word, uh, I'm not really sure how you pronounce it, malateo, really means to revolve in your mind. Um, it means to imagine. So uh, I think this is pretty outstanding. There are thousands of promises in the Bible. There are no promises of those, no promises for those who read, study, or memorize the Bible, but there is for the person that meditates on it. So I would ask as, as you search your hearts in the next few weeks of going to Nicaragua or whatever it is, uh, that you not just try to memorize scripture, but that you, you meditate on it. You revolve it in your mind. You think about it. What's it mean? Go through those passages um, like you're actually in them from different character perspectives. Uh, that's something we picked up when we were overseas from a team we were with, um, and it has been transforming. You know, I really think that's what Solomon says too when he says, let the scripture renew, let it renew your mind, let it revolve on your mind day and night. Um, meditate on it. So <clears throat> a couple other things quick. Uh, we ran into a lot of bribes and gifts over in Southeast Asia. Um, there's a fair amount of corruption there. We ran into a business. Um, they were making custom mountain bikes and exporting them back to the European Union and the U.S. Uh, they went out of business because they weren't willing to pay bribes to get their uh, basically raw parts from China imported. And they said, hey, we're not going to do this. We're not going to pay you extra for this. We're not going to bribe you. Um, and there's a lot of thought and discussion, you know, what is the difference between a bribe and a gift? Um, because they really look the same in a lot of contexts. Um, 
And I guess we kind of resolved to the idea that a bribe is given before a decision is made and a gift is given after. You know, the gift doesn't um, coerce the member who's giving something to go through with that decision. Um, but a bribe does. It's given before. It's given as an incentive. <clears throat> um, you know, everybody wants to have fruitful ministry, fruitful life. Um, and I've thought a lot about this, uh, especially being very task-oriented. Um, I love to achieve. I love to look at the things I've done and measure myself against it. I find value from that. Um, and I realize that when Jesus evaluates fruit, I really don't think he ever evaluates the quality or quantity. He evaluates the type of fruit. Um, don't put yourself against that metric. Uh, don't say, you know, we had a super fruitful time in Nicaragua because we saw this many people come to faith. It's the type of fruit that he's getting at. Not how much, not the quality, but the type, even in our own lives. <clears throat> um, I've also heard this said a lot in regards to missions. Do you feel at peace with going? Do you feel at peace with this decision? Do you feel at peace with marrying this person? Um, and people use it almost like a, a biblical standard. Like, do you, do you have peace about this decision? If so, then it must be God's will. Uh, I would say absolutely false. Uh, Jonah had plenty of peace walking away from the Nevites, not wanting to listen to God. Uh, I think it's great if you have peace, but there is no biblical foundation for needing peace to make a godly decision. Um, so I just, I just want to confront that. <clears throat> So a uh, few things on fundraising. Um, you know, as you guys fundraise, what you're really offering people um, is the vision, the vision of what you're going into, what you want to do, what it's about. Um, you are giving them a bid or an invitation, invitation to join you um, via means of prayer and giving. Um, and it's not, it's not just about you. It's about, what's God, it's about what God is doing and it's their chance to have an opportunity to join you in that. Um, ask big. Don't, don't set a number on what you ask people. Um, just, just share the vision. Share, uh, would you like to support me? Would you like to support us? Um, if you put a number on it, I guarantee that you are going to limit. Somebody was probably thinking $400. You're going you're gonna to have a piece of paper that says 50 75 150 You're going to be like, oh, well, I was thinking 400 but sure. I'll do 150. Um, <clears throat> and I would definitely recommend, as you guys support Ray's, uh, asking family, friends for money, use it as a time to reconcile. You know, Jesus says this in Matthew. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift to the altar. Uh, it is so big. It is such a value of God that we reconcile relationships. Fundraising is a great time to do that. It is a great time to reconnect. Um, it is so important to reconcile in our relationships to make things right with people. Um, I used uh, my times of fundraising for that, um, and it, it was amazing. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I spent hours writing letters um, and loved getting letters and phone calls back. It was great. <clears throat> it was so enriching. So last slide. <clears throat> um, I really think the last thing we need is more missions experts. I've heard other people say this too. Um, we just need people who love Jesus, who want to share their lives. Um, you know, he is made strong in us, not by how perfect we are, but by how imperfect we are. Um, you're not going there to share about how great my life is, how godly I am. You're going there to show how he fills you, how he makes you whole, how he makes you complete. That's what people are hungry for. They don't want to know how perfect, how great your life is. 
They want to know how broken you are and how Jesus fills you every day, how you abide in his vine. <clears throat> yeah, so I research this. God doesn't need us to complete his mission. It's our opportunity to partake. He doesn't need us. Um, he's the God of the world and of the universe. We get an opportunity to partake. Um, and, you know, lastly, like, my time overseas, my preparation to go overseas has been the most edifying, enriching, transforming moments of my life. Um, those few weeks, those few months um, have carried me and transformed me in a way that nothing else has. <clears throat> um, and I guess the last selling point is going overseas. Uh, I think God kind of makes it uh, a benefit to us is it's super marketable right now in the marketplace to have uh, international experience. Um, you know, and I don't know if that applies to your work, but having something on your resume, whether you're looking for jobs, um, showing that you work cross-culturally, that you worked in a cross-cultural team or atmosphere, um, spoke a different language or were in a country, speaking a different language is huge. Uh, I've worked for a few multinational companies now, um, and that experience is, has been very valuable. Um, I've been very changed by that. I look at uh, team projects, even in an engineering sense, much differently. <clears throat> um, it's not about the task. It's about our transformation, as I shared early, earlier. Change, people change the world. Um, I, I fully believe that. Missions is not a task. It's not an event. It is a way of life. Um, can I have my Bible? Mr. Chen. <clears throat> And with that, I just want to end with this. Uh, this is the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. <clears throat> this is God speaking. He says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know, let's be, let's be like a pipe and not a valve. Let's be a pipe where blessing flows through us, where we hold things with an open hand and we bless others. Um, I think we'll all find that God has so much more for us when we don't clamp on to the things he wants us. He wants to test us, right? Um, he, where do I want to go with this? The more faithful we are with those small things, the more he will give us to steward. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Um, I think that's very applicable to the blessings that we've been given here. So that is it. Uh, if you have any reason to contact me, want to call, want to chat, um, want to know anything about what I said, um, there's, my there's my name, my number, my email. <clears throat> so I just want to thank you guys. I felt so honored to come today that I would be asked uh, to share whatever it is. Uh, and I just want to bless you guys. So I'll just close this in prayer and say, Lord, I thank you so much for BCC. I thank you so much for every individual that is here. Uh, I would just ask that your spirit would come in, that it would come into our hearts, into our minds and our lives, Lord, um, that you would shake us up from our daily routine and what could be our daily ruts of life um, and ask us and inquire our hearts um, about what you would want us to do in our season of life, um, in our future, uh, regarding Nicaragua, regarding our work, our jobs, um, our kids. Uh, Lord, I just ask that your spirit be alive in us 
that it work through us and that it transform us on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat>